The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. Hold it. One, two, three strikes, you're out at the old ball game. Brandon? Okay, no, you only have it. There okay. you go. Now it's recording. Okay. Not great odds that I'll get through this cleanly the first first you know try, but we'll see. We'll see. Welcome back to Short Hops and Tall Tales, a pictureless podcast highlighting the weird, funny, and bizarre elements of baseball that make America's pastime special. Now, I'm once again joined by my co-host, the magnificent Brandon Riddle. Magnificent. And we are, yeah, magnificent. And we are excited to bring you another episode just packed with fun baseball stuff. Uh, now, today we're joined by our special guest, Justin Choi. Now, Justin is a baseball analyst and a writer for Fangraphs. Uh, he's also written for Prospects 365. Now, he's penned some great pieces on players like Yadier Molina and most recently the Marlins reliever uh, Richard Blyer, which came out today. Um, he also does a really cool recurring art. I, could, I was so close. Uh, uh. <laughs> okay. That was great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, also does a really cool recurring article on the happenings of the Korean baseball organization, which is a really, really interesting window into baseball overseas. Justin, welcome to the show. Super glad to have you. Yeah, glad to be on here. Um, super excited to just chill and talk about baseball. All right. Well, that's that's what we're here for. So a uh, quick rundown of everything we're going to be you know, talking about uh, today. So first, we're going to lead off and touch base with Justin about his experience both as a fan and as an analyst. Um, we're then going to go back into the name game and pull up two of what I think are the coolest baseball nicknames in history. And we've had some really cool ones there. So that's coolest, a- like Icebox? Chamberlain? Okay, well, we're going to... Okay, Brandon's got his pun in. Everybody take your drink. Um, <laughs> uh, then we're going to go and talk a little bit more about uh, some weird baseball slang in the pickle jar. And then, Brandon, independently of myself, the Diamondbacks fan, and now I just am trying to be 100% clear about this. Yes. Brandon came up with the idea to talk about the best team money can buy. Uh, the story of the 2013, uh, you know, that era of the Los Angeles Dodgers. It, it was uh, a fabulous book, and I just wanted to talk about it. And I figure with two Dodger fans, it might as well be the time. I just like to point out that I get, I usually get the flack for talking about the Dodgers, but this wasn't my idea. It wasn't my idea. So if you want, want any blame uh, for our, our fairly Dodger centric episode, point it at Brandon. Um, and then if we have time, we're just going to talk a little bit about just our favorite baseball plays. 
Um, so that's that's really what we're going to get into here tonight. So, Justin, I know uh, you're currently based in Seoul, Korea. Uh, you lived in New Jersey for a little while. Um, so my question is really like, who are the players that initially inspired your love of baseball growing up? So my favorite player back then, and he still is, is Ichiro Suzuki. Um, oh, because great. my uncle was a big baseball fan and he was the first person who introduced me to the whole game. And even though he was a Korean, he, he would always, you know, he, and he wasn't even a Mariners fan, but he'd always tune in to watch Ichiro hit because, you know, he's such a, such a special talent. His, like his ability to, you know, hit the ball and send it seemingly where it wants. Right. Um, yeah. And yeah, I just was enamored by the fact that there was this um, player, this Asian player of a small physique who was, you know, hitting 300 <laughs> each year and had some really good base running and some exciting plays in the outfield too. So um, he's oh, one of my inspirations. Plays definitely. understatement. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think you can pick a better favorite player than Ichiro. And I've, no. I've mentioned this multiple times on the podcast that like ever since he retired a couple of years ago, baseball's really just been missing. It's had an Ichiro sized hole in the game because he's, he's just one of a kind. He's one of the coolest yeah, players and, that we've ever seen. And he, he came up at his peak, you know, when the steroid era was at their peak and there he was a throwback to the dead ball era. And it was just so exciting to see. And throughout the entire career, amazing person to root for. Yeah, if you watch the John Boyce video uh, about the Mariners, it talks about how mm. there's this whole game before Ichiro and then after Ichiro, and how if you look at the data, basically there's a lot of home run hitters, um, right? And then there's this Ichiro with a ton of singles just stacked on top of each other, like this on a chart. And so, yeah, um, yeah, like he, he was special back then. He's special now, and I feel like we won't have a player like him ever again. You know, even if Madrigal. Like reaches yeah. his 90th percentile projection <laughs> for a player of his type, you know, it still won't be the same, um, I guess, sensation as when Ichiro first arrived at, in the states. Ichiro was one of the one of the that that very top tier of baseball players that had you know a cultural impact that surpassed his Hall of Fame level talent. Like, you don't really get to say that about a lot of players. Like, there's Ken Griffey Jr., who was just all over the 90s. And each row definitely fills, you know, in that in that same, you know, kind mm-hmm. of category. He was just huge. Now, just a little more of a question about kind of like your, your baseball experience growing up. Um, now, were you a fan of KBO teams or MLB teams first? And which ones? So, I was first a fan of American baseball. So, Major League Baseball. Um, and I used to be a Mets fan, actually, believe it or not. Really? Yeah. (laughs) Um, so that was because I grew up in New Jersey and my dad was a Yankees fan. He still is. And he kind of yells at Gary Sanchez whenever he strikes (laughs) out like that kind of Yankees fan. Um, Oh, okay. But then like, I kind of wanted to like not follow in his footsteps. So I, I chose the Mets instead because they were also in New York. They were close, but then they were not the Yankees. So I went with the Mets. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Um, it was not a happy era because it was like t- 2008, 2009, that period of the Mets. So like, yeah, like a little bit stale. David Wright. Yeah, but still like it was fun enough. And then um, I came back to Korea when I was in third grade and 
Um, by then, I was interested enough in baseball that I also started to look at KBO teams. And so I became a fan of the Doosan Bears. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember like the first game I went to, the first Bears game, they hit two grand slams in that game. And you know, nine-year-old wow. me was just blown away. So, you know, Bears for life. Yeah, and in your nine-year-old in your nine-year-old self watching these two grand slams, like what was the crowd and atmosphere like? Because they're distinctly different than here in the States, typically. Yeah, KBO games are like a rock concert. There's a lot of cheering, um, like yelling. And then, so yeah, when those grand slams happen, like, and I was in the outfield, um, I could see like the entire crowd below just exploding into this like wow. enormous rupture. So it was thrilling to watch, like, and especially considering that I was only nine or ten at that time. Um, yeah, it, it, mm-hmm. it sticks with you. Yeah, makes you a fan. That's that's, that's definitely something on my bucket list. Is I really want to get out to to Korea and see some KBO some KBO games. I, I myself had my first like real kind of like dive into the KBO along with I think a lot of other people in 2020, yep. right? Yep, yep, yep. Um, and I was 100% on the NC Dinos bandwagon for sure. Um, and it, it was a whole lot of fun, even, you know, getting up super early in the morning, you know, <laughs> middle of the night over here. Yeah. Uh, I was even, addicted. <laughs> even what I would do with friends is we would choose one game a night and we make small little bets and wagers on it. And we try to stay up really late, like get up really early to watch them. So it, it provided a great experience. And yeah, I absolutely loved it. Yeah. Um, and then I know you've, you've kind of talked about this a little bit on other podcasts, but bear with us here just for, you know, our, our listeners, what are some of the key differences in play style, uh, between, you know, the KBO and MLB? Um, definitely the emphasis on contact, um, as opposed to the long ball. So I think the MLB league batting average is around 230, whereas in the KBO, it's around 260. So First, that's a huge wow. difference. Yeah. Yeah. And then second, I would say there's also more base stealing, I think. Uh, I'm not sure if the data bears mm-hmm. that out, but it definitely feels like there's more um, like hit and run plays and stuff like that. Yeah, that makes sense. There's more contact, more opportunities to steal as well. Yeah. So it's not like a completely dead ball era of play, but it's also not the modern game. I'd say it's like like in the 80s, 90s, like that era of Major League Baseball is what KBO has right now. That's cool. That's really exciting. And so I, I mentioned it a little bit earlier when I introduced you, but you've been doing these really cool articles on fan graphs, just kind of checking in on the KBO, uh, helping people like me who maybe can't get up every night super, super late to watch games. Um, so for somebody who's really just interested in getting into watching KBO games, um, what are just a couple just you don't have to go through the whole list but what are just like one or two or three of the notable teams in the kbo um and then if if possible uh if, if you could maybe make a link to an mlb team so i see the nc dinos first of all um since they won the korean series in 2020 um mm-hmm. they're like the dodgers honestly um not in terms of financial <laughs> ability but more like so they were the first KBO team to emphasize launch angle. Um, so that's cool. Yeah. yeah. Like, I don't know if it's the first, but then they were the first to have success with that strategy. And so all of a sudden, you know, their nine hitter, I think had 15 home runs like out of nowhere. And the entire lineup had 20, 30 home runs. And so, uh, yeah, like their use of not only data, but also player development is really admirable. And also, um, 
you know, and it's not like the Rays where um, they only develop analytics and they won't spend on players. They also sign these um, uh, mm-hmm. big free agents during the offseason. And so it's like this really fun combination between, um, you know, analytics and also uh, the willingness to spend and invest in their team. So, um, yeah, it's like they're like a bit of, like the Dodgers, I say. And then uh, who else is there? Um, I know you talked about the, the Bears. Yeah, the Bears. Uh you know, I'm a fan of the Bears, but I'm not really a fan of their their philosophy. They're kind of oh, uh, they're kind of old school. Yeah. So mm. okay. Yeah, they do have good players though, and they are a fun team. But it's just, you know, they bunt way too much. Just stop bunting. <laughs> I, I love hearing about these idiosyncrasies of other teams because we we all kind of know those templates, but to hear them in other leagues too, it kind of makes me happy. Yeah, there's definitely like uh, the stereotypes for each team uh, in the KBO2. Um, And if you want to root for a rebuilding team, um, the Hanwha Eagles, they recently just tore it down completely. So, um, and they're not good right now, but they might be in about four or five years or maybe, maybe even three. Who knows? That that way you can get attached to the players and root for them and be happy when they succeed. Yeah, exactly. Like to see their progress throughout the years. Yeah. Uh, so, so kind of along the, those same lines, uh, myself, I am unfortunately extremely ignorant of the KBO. Uh, so I'm curious, like, what are some all-time players uh, that every baseball fan should know from that league? Good question. Probably the pitcher Dong Yor Sun. He's basically like this, basically the Sandy Koufax of the KBO. Um, legendary pitcher. Ooh, so many words. accolades. Uh, he set the single-season record for the lowest ERA in it. And yeah, like, you know, pretty much every game he went out, he pitched usually a shutout. Um, sometimes went 10, 11, 12 wow. innings. So. Uh, roughly, when was this? It was around the 80s. The 80s? Okay. Yeah. And so just to kind of like wrap up our conversation a little bit about the KPO, uh, I know Hassan Kim recently made the jump uh, from Korea to the San Diego Padres. And while he struggled a bit so far, he's been super fun to watch playing defense. Um, now, are there any names or let me rephrase that. What are some of the next names to look out for that you think might be able to make the transition to the States? Ooh, so the first player that comes to mind is Beko Gang. So he is a first baseman for the KT Wiz, and um, right now he's hitting 400. It's it's June, oh. <laughs> and he's still hitting 400. And so his hit tool is massive, basically. Um, even if he can't play defense um, in the States, I think he'll hit enough to be a star. That's my like very optimistic projection for him. Um, and it's not like he's like a, you know, like a typical pull hitter either. He he can use. Um, uh-huh. not just the pole side, but also the, the opposite side as well. He can send the ball anywhere, but also with power. You know, he has that 20 to 30 um, annual home run power. So, yeah, he is a star to watch, definitely. That's cool. All right. Uh, I, I have one, one last question because yeah. I'm just really interested by this. Um, so baseball loves their, you know, like mythic numbers, 500 home runs, 300 wins. Are there any like iconic numbers like that with the KBO? I'd say the single season home run record set by um, Sing Yup Lee of the Samsung Lions. Um, I believe it's 58 in a season. 
58. Which is very impressive considering that uh, the KBO plays fewer games than MLB does. There we go. And also the fact that yeah. um, the league environment itself is not catered to home run hitters, but he did it anyways in the season. So, um, yeah, like even <laughs> Korean That's people cool. who don't know much about baseball, like if you mention his name, then they'll, they'll be like, oh, yeah, that like that. OK, that record, you know. I, I got yeah. some. I got some people to learn about. I'm excited. <laughs> yeah, um, and one one of my favorite things just before we I before we wrap this up is I absolutely loved the thing that I thought was most striking about watching those those KBO games is the bat flips, man. Like, oh my gosh, they you know here we have this whole debate about you know don't swing three and zero. These guys are sending bats to the moon in the second <laughs> inning. It is the most entertaining baseball like I think I, I've seen in 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 so long it's so fun yeah there's that weird like juxtaposition between so so the kbo um they're still kind of old school and then they preach these uh you know strategies that you know maybe are are outdated today but then they still have the bat flip you know which it's like these two differences (laughs) that seemingly don't aren't compatible but then they are in this in this league so yeah i imagine like a lot of people would have been like shocked to see even batters flipping their bat after hitting a flyout, it's the warning track. You know, like just casually just doing it. It's like <laughs> wow. it's not even part of their. Wow. Yeah, it's not even like a a rehearsed celebration or anything. It's it's a it's an instinct to just flip their bat. <laughs> I love now, that. Now, now I, I gotta say, with that, um, people go read Justin's uh, KBOs over at uh, Fangraphs because it's gonna be fun. <laughs> Read all this stuff. I mean, I, I, I learn something every time you, you put a piece out there. Well, cool. Justin, thanks so much for, for giving us a little a little piece of baseball overseas. That was super, super fun. And it coincidentally leads off, or leads into our, our pickoff trivia transition for the day. Um, and so this, you know, this question is KBO related. And it's who is the all-time leader in saves in the Korean baseball organization? Uh, my, my knowledge has very deep holes. Brandon looks to it lost. Yeah, absolutely so I, I, lost. I've got absolutely nothing here, um, but I'm excited to learn to find out. So I'm a little confused because um, there are two closers, I think, who have very similar save numbers. Um, but I think okay. it's someone O. I think it's him. You're right. It, yeah. You're right. It's someone O. Okay. Nice. Yeah, and he has 279. Mm-hmm. Now, for bonus points, can you name the the person with the second or third most saves? Uh, Uram Jung. I don't think that's who I have. I have uh, Sun Sung Lak. Oh, right, right, uh, right. Who has two seventy one? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I forgot about him because he's uh, he played um, after I became a fan of baseball. So yeah, but he yeah that makes sense. Ah, yeah, yeah. Ooh, he's only yeah. eight behind as well. That's tough. <laughs> I just have to retire at that point. Yeah. Um, but you, you got the first one, Sung Hwano. And, you know, that actually ties into our name game for today because he actually has the coolest baseball nicknames that I think I have ever heard. Um, and so what we do here is I, I'm going to, gonna you know, pitch you both his nicknames. And I want to just, you know, have you take a crack at, you know, what, what's the backstory behind it? How did he get that nickname, right? Um, so the first one is Stone Buddha, which is awesome. What, what are our thoughts Stone there? Stone Buddha. Right? Yeah. 
Oh boy. That one's a lot of, you know, avenues we can go down here. (laughs) Um, so he basically has a reputation for being stone faced when he goes into the mound and he closes out a game. Um, so (laughs) his expression won't change, you know, it won't change if he's given up a run, if he's closed out, uh, closed out with three strikeouts, it won't change at all. So Mm -hmm. basically if you go to like a, a Buddhist monastery, you'll find these uh, stone Buddha statues that have these very, you know, like relaxed and expressionless faces. And so that's where the nickname, nickname comes from. The fact that he looks like a stone Buddha when he pitches. Um, and it's just fun. And, and that's that, like imagining him as like a guardian of the mound, just kind of standing there like a statue. Well, that's awesome to think about. Thank you for that. And that's just such a great quality for a pitcher to have is to, you know, not be visibly rattled because when you start getting somebody who's kicking around on the mound, you know, throwing his glove as a hitter, you know, okay, we've got this guy. We're in his head. Um, And then the second nickname he has, which I think is probably, I don't think there's a closer nickname that can top it, even including the Sandman, Mariano Rivera. It's final boss. Because he's the final boss. He is the guardian of the mound you must defeat in the final battle. <laughs> like, that's so cool. You've got some, some like, video game kind of homage there. I think that's that's just killer because I can just see, you know, playing MLB The Show or something. And you're like, great, now i got to come, come back from and, down, you know, bottom of the ninth against this guy. And I love the fact that this guy has two nicknames. It's like the Sultan of Swad or the Maserata the Mash. Just, I love it. Yeah, one wasn't enough. Yeah, it's, um, yeah. So yeah, let's. Yeah, it's like just wanted to add that you know when he was putting up like sub one ERAs in his prime, it was just game over. Like, like yeah, it really fit that. Nickname. And I think that yeah, yeah he, he's the final boss. And you know, we're gonna I'm gonna talk a little bit about just like his profile here because I know um, you know before I researched him, I had no idea how amazing he was in Korea and then later in his career in Japan before coming to the U.S. Um, so, so, oh, so he grew up pitching, right? Um, but what's really interesting that I dug up that he actually originally switched to the outfield after, you know, he had arm injuries in 1999. Um, he actually went undrafted out of high school in 2001. So he elected to go to college, uh, where he underwent Tommy John and actually came back to the mound in 2003. Now, this is a really cool story because he starts off as that, that person that all of the teams kind of passed on, right? You know, somebody who was hurt. Um, and he really made his career as one of the best pitchers in, you know, KBO history, right? Um, so his final or his senior season of college, 2004, uh, he just lit, just lit the tour on fire, right? He took home a ton of, you know, their college pitching awards, uh, represented South Korea at the World University Baseball Championships in Taiwan. Um, and, you know, he did so on the strength of his, his heavy fastball and his sharp slider. Now his fastball, uh, kind of tied in with the stone Buddha nickname and they called it a stone fastball because it's just, it's like hitting a heavy rock, right? You know, the spin on that thing. Uh, he didn't throw it terribly hard. He sat 92 to 93, but just, it was, you, you make contact and it's really not going anywhere. Yeah. You could tell some of the, the fastballs people, they're, they're just heavier than others for some reason. Yeah. Yeah, and so out of college, he's 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 now on the radar of KBO teams, right? And he actually gets selected in the second round of the draft in 2005 by the Samsung Lions. He then goes on to put up one of the best rookie seasons in history, right? So he goes 10-1, 118 ERA, 16 saves, 115 strikeouts. Uh-huh. 
which is fifth in the league as, and he's a closer doing this. He's not a starter. He's fifth in the league in strikeouts out of the bullpen. Um, then he goes on, he pitches seven innings in three games with 11 strikeouts as the Lions closer in the Korean series. Wow. Uh, for those of you who aren't familiar, that is the championship round, uh, you know, like the World Series in MLB. Uh, and he took home the MVP, which is incredible for a closer coming in. He was lights out in his rookie uh, season. Yeah, closer rookie gets the MVP. <laughs> yeah, and at the end of that, that first year, he also won the Rookie of the Year award for the KBO, which is really cool. Um, he then goes on in the offseason or in 2006, the following year, he represents Korea in the first ever World Baseball Classic. Uh, he would later go on to represent in 09, 2013, and 2017 as well. Um, and you're going to hear me rattle off a ton of accolades for, for O. Uh, he, he's got to be one of the most decorated pitchers in, in just, just international baseball history, I would think, because he just racks up trophies. So, you know, the next year he sets the single season KBO saves record uh, with 47. This was his first year of, of two where he got at least 40 saves. Becomes the fastest uh, pitcher ever to 100 saves in KBO history and helps the Lions win four more championships in wow. 06, 2011, 2012, and 2013. He was unhittable. Just, just, and that's, that's why they called him the final boss because you can't, you can't beat him. He's like Bowser, you know, he's somebody who you got to give the controller up to your older brother for, for, for help. Right. Do, do they do like a reliever walk-in songs? Like when the closer comes in, sometimes the music plays and it gets all like, like WWE atmosphere. Like, do they do that in KBO as well? I would think. Well, players get their own theme songs sometimes. Actually. Oh, what? like the team writes <laughs> songs for them. And then, then when they walk uh, out, the cheerleaders kind of like, they go into their dance routine and then, the song blares on the speakers and you know it's time for that player major major league baseball take notes yeah make custom <laughs> songs you know just Honestly, don't use pop songs <laughs> the the fan experience is really something that i think that major league baseball could really benefit from oh, yeah. you know like like just both in the park and the marketing of of stars um you know like i would i would I would go go nuts to a Mike Trout, you know, personalized song when he walks up to the plate. Um, you know, I, I, th- I think in the future we need a show dedicated to the fan experience with the KBO. Oh, for I sure, would love that. Yeah. Um, so back to back to O. Uh, he wins a second Korean Series MVP in 2011. That's two because he's already run out of room in his trophy case. Um, now he now this is he's he's already had a legendary career in Korea, right? This is where it gets gets even even wilder. So after 2013, he says, you know what? I'm actually going to go to Japan in signs with the Hanshin Tigers. Uh, this was the largest contract for a Korean... Words are hard. This is the largest contract for a Korean player ever in Japan. And then he has a great season. You know, it's, it's awesome. 2014, he reaches another level. And he pretty much wills the Tigers to the, to the Japan series, the, that, the, the championship series at the, at the end of the year by pitching in 11 consecutive games, including five in the regular season and then four in the Climax Series, which is the first round. I didn't know that, consecutive actually. consecutive games. Like, can you wow. imagine? Like, how does his arm not fall off? And like, what's wilder is he got he got the save, like, in, in each one. Oh, my goodness. It reminds me of peak Andrew Miller, but not even he <laughs> went 11 consecutive games at that level. Wow. 
It's it's almost like that that season where CC Sabathia was on the Brewers and they oh, just yeah. said, you know what, screw it, we're gonna we're gonna throw like, you every game and you're like gonna take three us to the complete ring. games within like yeah ten six days something like that. It was insane. Yeah, and so appropriately, uh, you know, he he pitched he closed out those four games in the first round, won the MVP of the Climax Series. Unfortunately, the Tigers could not overcome in the Japan Series, uh, but still an amazing, incredible season. Uh, so in 2015, he ends up saving 41 games for the Tigers, breaking his own record for saves by a Korean pitcher in the MPB. Um, and so at the end, uh, or I mean, not the end because he's still playing, but through 11 total professional seasons in South Korea and Japan, he recorded 357 saves with a 181 ERA. Oh that's transcendent. Like that's 181. Like I... That's I, I'm running out of adjectives because I can't appropriately convey how raw this guy this guy was. So then he, you know, he's like, "Look, I want to be the first guy ever to play in uh, to pitch in the Korean series, the Japan series, and the World series." Whew. This guy's he's, he's trotting the globe because he just can't find anyone challenging enough, right? And so in he 2016, is the final boss. he is. In 2016, he goes and he signs a one-year deal uh, with a club option with the St. Louis Cardinals. Um, and he initially, he starts out as a setup man for Trevor Rosenthal. But by the end of the season, he's taken his job as the closer. And he finishes with a 192 ERA and 103 strikeouts. Do you know how old he was when he came over in 2016? It was like mid-30s, no? Or early 30s. Okay, so in his first season, his rookie season with the Cardinals, he's 33 years old. Wow. He's 33 wow. years old, and he's got a 192 ERA, ends up finishing sixth in Rookie of the Year voting. Just an unconscious tear. Uh, unfortunately, however, you know that first season, it did end up being his best season in MLB. Uh, his following year in 2017 wasn't quite as strong, had a 410 ERA. Uh, but then the following year in 2018, he actually bounced back pretty well with the Blue Jays uh, and posted a 268 mark in 47 innings before being traded to Colorado. Now, yeah, where pitchers go to die. <laughs> yeah. Now, this is this is really, really where it kind of makes me a little sad because I feel like you didn't get a, a really full shot in Colorado uh, because one, he's pitching at Coors where clearly, I mean, that's the worst place to pitch <laughs> by far. Um, and he gets hurt. He's struggling through arm injuries and he finishes the season with a 933 ERA. Uh, and then he gets designated for assignment. So that was kind of a damper on, you know, what, what was looking like a really solid career, um, so far, maybe not the heights that he had reached in Korea and Japan, but definitely a very, a very solid reliever in, in MLB. Um, so he gets designated for assignment in 2019, but then he returns to Korea and he's now back currently pitching for the Samsung Lions. Um, in 2020, he had a 264 ERA and 47.2 innings pitched. Right. right? Um, so in a nutshell, that's just a brief glimpse at one of the one of the best closers in, in baseball history worldwide. Now, Brandon is going to take us into our next segment, the pickle jar. And I got to be honest. I've up to this point, I've at least known each of roughly what each of these terms have meant. I have no idea what we're talking about today. Brandon, take it away. Well, that now we're even for things like the Brooklyn chop. And I've never heard the things like that. Baltimore before. chop. <laughs> Baltimore. Oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> uh, but yeah, in, in, in this week of the pickle chart, we're asking about the catbird seats. 
So we're trying to figure out what does the catbird seat uh, mean in terms of, you know, baseball? How does it relate at all? It's a um, catbird seat. So That's first like, we're going to go with a huh. catbird, like the animal, like, like cat dog, like the Cartoon Network show, right? That's, <laughs> That's just three right? nouns. It's like reference. cat bird and seat. That's three nouns, you know? It's, it's just three oh, nouns. That? Baseball oh, this, slang is dumb. Yeah. So uh, Noah, what do you think? I have no idea. I'm going to come up with something on the fly right now. That's what now. it says in the notes. That's what it says in the notes. It says, <laughs> I have no idea. I'm going to come up with something on the fly. Um, cat bird seats. I don't know. That's two animals in a, in a chair. Um, I'm going to go with, okay. So I feel like there's a lot of non sequiturs when it comes to baseball lingo. I'm going to say like the cat bird seat is maybe like where the manager might hang out like in the dugout, you know, okay. maybe he's got, the, okay. I don't know why I have no idea how it connects to the animal parts. Maybe there's, there's probably some old timey, you know, 1880s reasoning for it, but I'm going to just going to say like, that's his chair. He sits there. Maybe he gets like cat calls. Cat and, and he's birds. Cat calls. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> uh, Justin, I'm going to put you on the spot. What do you, what do you think? I, Cause I clearly have no idea. So, a lot of baseball slang is like a metaphor for something, right? So, in my head, maybe like a seed is like a metaphor for okay. a pitch, okay. you know, like a pitch that someone throws. So, like a, a cat I, bird. I think it's seat. Oh, like it's chair. Oh, it's seat. Oh, my bad. All right. So, yeah, ignore, seat ignore like that. chair. Ignore yeah. That. All right. Oh, yeah, yeah. Cat yeah. bird seat. Um, all right. So, maybe not a pitch, but then more like. Um, like you're on the hot seat, right? Like you're you're in trouble. So it's yeah. like a catbird seat is sure is when uh it's like you know a cat chases a bird and you're in the hot seat. So it's like a slang <laughs> for when you're in trouble on the base pass. I don't know, like something that okay. relates to so, be, okay. being in in a, a tough situation. That's my guess. So typically when we, when we do these terms, they at least have some kind of like tangential baseball, you know, feel to them. I, there's nothing in here that relates whatsoever to baseball, just, just on the surface level. But, um, unlike a lot of these terms that have, you know, origins in like the military or origins for the 1700s and they get adopted by baseball, this one is distinctly baseball, uh, birthed. Uh, so really quick, uh, Justin, you had it the exact opposite. Um, it's not somebody in trouble. It's actually a team or a player that's in a great position at the moment. Okay. Oh. Uh, so I guess the idea would be, you know, you're a cat sitting in a high seat looking for like birds or things. So it's a cat bird seat. So uh, I don't actually know what that means at all. So the POV matters, basically. <laughs> yeah. So I was looking at it from the, the praise perspective, but I was looking at it from the cat's perspective. Okay. Like. Yeah, yeah, that, that makes matters. Sense. Uh, but the phrase itself really doesn't make any sense. Catbird seat. It's not an old timey, well, super old timey saying. At least for you know, um, short hops and tall tales perspective. Uh, but it actually comes from a short story. Uh, it's a short story written by uh, James Thurber. Finally, my English background comes in handy in 1942, and the story is named the Catbird Seat. And before that, uh, you know, no one had used it because one of the characters, uh, they kind of go on a rant, just making things up. And one of the things they make up is catbird seat. And so she keeps using it. Um, well, she thought she made it up because then she's mansplained by another character that goes, well, actually, catbird seat is uh, said often by Brooklyn Dodgers announcer Red Barber. 
So within the story, uh, Red Barber would, on- would constantly say catbird seat. Uh, when the players like, you know, on, in a good count, he's three balls and no strikes. Okay. He's sitting pretty. <laughs> uh, but the funny thing is, Red Barber in real life never said it until the story <laughs> came out in the New York Times. He read it and then he started using catbird seat in the actual games. Oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> so culture influence in baseball there to, for, distinctly for baseball. That's a lot of fun. That's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Mm-hmm. Um, and really quick related trivia. Make this one kind of go fast. Uh, so which Major League Baseball franchise is sitting in a catbird seat and has won the most games in history? I'm going to let Justin go first. Okay. Okay, so history as in since um, like 1901, 1920. Since, ni- since 1876. When so that part back. Okay. I feel like it'd be the Cardinals franchise. That's my that's guess. A good, that's a good idea. Because they always find a way to win one. somehow. That was magic. You got, you got the bird imagery in there. Yeah. I do really like their simple logo of the Cardinal on the bats. I'll give oh, a yeah. pass for that. And the embroidery on the jerseys that no one else does anymore. It's really, really oh, classic. Yeah. All right, Noah, what you got? All right, I'm going to take the easy way out and go with the Yankees. The Yankees? <laughs> uh, well, you, it's not the Yankees. Oh. It is not the Cardinals. It is, in fact, the San Francisco Giants. Oh. Going back to the time with New York as well. Uh, they have 11,196 wins. Wow. Hmm. You know, yeah, it has to be one of those ancient New York teams. Yeah, because in second place with the second most wins, it's the Dodgers. Okay, I'll take it. Yeah. <laughs> and they're like 80 wins. Like, I think 80 bl- behind. So it's still pretty close. I can't believe it's not the Yankees. Yeah, Yankees, That's, I think, are fourth or something like that. But remember, the Yankees come from the American League, so they've had a couple uh, oh, fewer years to okay. get them wins. Well, speaking of the second-place Dodgers, Noah, <laughs> um, our next segment, uh, we're going to be talking about a book that came out in 2015 by Molly Knight, and it is called The Best Team Money Can Buy, all about the 2013 Los Angeles Dodgers. What a great topic. This is just, just, you've outdone yourself. Truly. Well, so, you know, listeners, we have two Dodgers fans here. So I figured I might as well bring out the Dodger book, the one Dodger book I have. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I actually love this book because what Molly Knight does is she goes, you know, um, in depth, almost investigative on the the 2013 Dodgers. She goes in the clubhouse, gets interviews with like the owners, the managers, the players. So it really feels like you're inside the clubhouse of the front office for that season. And it is such an interesting season uh, for the Dodgers. So f- to kind of set it up here, uh, the Dodgers, the season before were owned by Frank McCourt. And uh, Noah, you want to give me a r- real quick. Yeah. What sure, your thoughts can- are towards him. I can give you a, a, a quick, uh, yeah. So Frank McCourt was a grifter that um, <laughs> purchased the team and attempted to. I mean, he, he attempted to bankrupt them. And now, he, now, now, now really quick, um, when he purchased the team, he didn't actually spend any of his own money. Yeah. So what happened? The, the, the people that owns the Dodgers at the time, which was you know the Fox News station, uh, they bought the team to have television rights to that area, uh, but then they. It wasn't making money or they didn't want it. I forget the exact issue. But then they sold it to Frank McCourt, who actually got a loan from Fox to buy the team with their own money. So he never paid a cent of his own money for the team. That's, I mean, objectively, 
incredibly shrewd, but you know, with the actual you know health of the franchise in mind, yeah. horrible move, horrible mm-hmm. move. I, yeah, go for it. No, you remember. Go for yeah, it. Yeah, I, I was just gonna say. I remember, you know, at the time uh, when, Do- you know, fans were boy- boycotting the stadium. People just would not show up to Dodger games, and I just remember looking out and seeing all of these empty seats in Dodger Stadium, fifty six thousand, you know, yeah. capacity. That's a lot of empty and to seats. To see that in like the fourth inning, that would be weird. I remember the, going to bed, though, going to bed as a child. You know, just like praying that some like Mark Cuban or somebody would, would buy the team and, and bail, you know, bail us out. But, uh, and luckily it, it ended up working out, but uh, I'll it, let it you did. continue. Yeah. So McCourt's just did incredible things to the franchise. So it's, he called, Noah called him like a, a grifter, for example. Um, he very much, you know, tight with his wallet. So as an example, he didn't hire the proper security, um, you know, um, off duty officers in their uniform. He hired plain clothes people with polos uh, because they cost 50% less. So, number one, um, security there. Um, they had a charity uh, that had about a $1.6 million budget, uh, but the guy at the head of this charity was a friend of McCord and took in $400,000 a year of, of, of that $1.6 million. So, a huge amount. This charity is going to a good buddy. And then he came in, um, and the Dodgers had a budget of 104 million, which is fourth highest at the time. And then within three years, he cut it down to 83 million, which was middle league for a Los Angeles team. Is that's yeah. insane? And of course, during that time, uh, when he was you know pinching pennies there at the Dodgers, he was buying lavish homes and planes and crazy things like that for himself and his wife. Uh, so grifter is about the right word. <laughs> and then in 2011. Um, the Dodgers had to file bankruptcy due to McCourt leading the way. And it happened in the middle of June. And when it occurred, players actually picked up the phone before a game and called their agents asking if their check is going to bounce. Like that's how much it was hurting the team. So I, I can't imagine you know, trying to thrive in that atmosphere. And McCourt did sell the team uh, at the beginning of the 2013 season. And that's where the story um, kind of picks up is that background of the courts and how does a team step out from that and try to be successful. And so you have that, um, you know, ominous cloud over your head, but then the players themselves were just so many different characters uh, that yeah. mesh, but also didn't mesh. It was like, um, what would you really call it? Chaotic beauty, something like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the guy um, that's probably spearheading this Clayton Kershaw, who? Uh, Clayton Kershaw. Am oh, I saying okay. that right? The ah at the end? I, think yeah, I, don't, I don't know. That's <laughs> right. uh, the greatest picture of the generation. Okay. Yeah, that Clayton right, sure. Kershaw. Yeah, he is the, yeah, the absolute guy. Um, you know, the, 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 uh, Molly gets to interview Clayton at his home the day he signs that massive uh, contract. And you just get a real feel for who this guy is. And I hate it because he's such a good guy. Most of these guys on Dodgers, they're good guys. And I want them individually to be successful. Uh, but anyway, so Clayton, um, for example, has raised $14 million uh, through his own charity in the last 10 years. Um, so just everything about him is class and amazing. And I love it. Uh, but, you know, uh, he gets kind of reviewed in this book for his military precision on the mound and in preparation. Uh, so it's noted, like for a game that starts at 710, which is about normal for the Dodgers, um, he'll kind of sleep in, eat his cereal. Uh, so in the easy, relaxed morning, but then at 2 p.m., he's at the stadium every day, 
or during pitching days. And he'll grab himself a turkey sandwich with a bag of chips. Excellent. And then at 4 p.m., he'll kind of look over the opponent's lineup and, you know, burn some nerves. Uh, but here's where the timeline begins. At 4 p.m., he has yogurt, fruit, and takes a quick nap. And at 5.15, uh, the pitching coach comes over and has a talk with Kershaw. And Kershaw at this time was famous for sticking to the plan and not making adjustments uh, inning to inning. Like he knew what he wanted to execute. And he went out and did it almost every single time. At 5.58, uh, Kershaw puts heat pads on his back, shoulder, and elbow. At 6.20, he walks to the dugout and gets a cup of water. 6.23, he takes the field and starts to warm up. And at 6.40, he starts playing catch, uh, typically with the catcher at the time, A.J. Ellis. And then for eight minutes, he'll play long toss. And then at 6.50, he begins throwing from the mound. At 7.02, he's back in the dugout. And then after the anthem, he will lead his team on the field. And it's like that every single time he pitches. He has this down to a minute. Um, I remember a story of a different interviewer. Um, I think it's like during the All-Star break or something. Uh, he, he gets an interview for like 6.58 for Clayton Kershaw. So he gets there uh, you know, a couple minutes early. And at 6.50 exactly, there's Kershaw. And he goes, I'm here for five minutes that we agreed to. We start now. Like he's not being offensive. Yeah. He's he's just that kind of person that has his mindset and works that way. He values his own time, which is you know very admirable to be honest. Um, yeah. Now I, I I also remember a story. Full disclosure: I've also you know read this book um, that they talk about uh, Josh Lindblom, who is now you know a, a pitcher. I think he's on the Brewers, right? And you know back then though he was this this you know he's you know a very young guy. And his teammates, they're trying to prank him and they, they're trying to get him to go up and mess with Kershaw on his start day. And he has this quote, I think, in the book where he says something along the lines of like, yeah, I'm pretty sure if I had said anything to him, I wouldn't have ever pitched another game in the, in the big leagues because, wow. you know, like he would have bitten his head off. You know, uh-huh. and that's that's just who Kershaw is on his start days. You know, when he's not pitching, he's in the dugout, he's hanging out, he's, he's goofing off a little bit. But when he's on the mound, it is regimented and it is incredibly businesslike. Uh, well, think about pitching itself. It's just a series of repeated movements. You have to, you know, copy exactly. So it kind of makes sense to want to copy your entire day exactly and be able to repeat those motions to, to perfection every time. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. amazing how, you know, it's down to the minute because for me, my life is basically just going from one thing to the next without any sort of like, <laughs> precision yeah. i just go with the flow you know <laughs> but then kershaw yeah he's so meticulous about his approach that everything has to come down to this exact moment and there's this exact amount of repetition and so you know it, it's mm-hmm. just not just um the pitching aside but just the dedication and the mindfulness to be able to to stick the routine for years and years like that alone i think is, is yeah amazing. that's discipline yeah. i don't know if he still follows that exact same regiment uh, I wouldn't have put it past him, though, if he did. <laughs> Maybe he switched it up to a ham sandwich. I don't know. That could um, but, yeah, he, he is, before we move on from Kershaw, I think, I mean, I can say this very confidently. He's the single greatest pitcher I think I'm ever going to see in my life. Like, Jacob deGrom is, is you know, not of this earth. But prime Clayton Kershaw, I don't think that anyone, I, yeah, I just I don't think. Yeah, as someone who, yeah, who watched since Ryu became a Dodger, like that 2013 onwards, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but then you say that, but then somebody like Pedro Martinez comes around and he blows you away. Like, I'm never going to see that again. But then we saw CC Sabathia have that similar, you know, a very short run like that. And it's just, 
I don't want to make you feel old, Brandon, but Pedro gets brought up a lot in these Kershaw conversations. And I say Kershaw because I was just honestly too young to appreciate Pedro when he was when he was in his prime. <laughs> you know, I, I've seen the I've seen the data. I've I've you know, I've I've heard all the arguments. Yeah. Oh, you know, Pedro pitched goodness. in the in the steroid era. I'm just saying personally, I don't think I will see another pitcher, you know, and be able to appreciate him like I've been able to appreciate. Kershaw. Yeah, it's also also part of the like. Where you're at in your life as well, like how dedicated are you to baseball? When you become a super fan and somebody like Kershaw walks in, you know you're not going to get that kind of feeling. So you're going to go chase that dragon uh, for every other season after that. <laughs> but yeah, I yeah. completely get that. And I just before we move on, I know I just said that I just can't stop talking about Kershaw. Um, I re- I just remember being a kid, and at the time before Kershaw, pre 2008, my favorite player was Nomar Garcia Para, and I just remember seeing Clayton Kershaw, you know, this fresh fresh faced kid in some you know throwaway spring training game, his very first year, and going like, you know, Nomar's not on the team anymore. I need a new favorite player. I like this guy. Just happened to pick the best possible player I think I could have gone with, uh, just completely arbitrarily before he oh, threw yeah. a pitch. Um, and I think it's worked out so far. But uh, anyway, who else was on the team? Uh, well, 24 of the people. But for our purposes, um, I think right now we're going to transition <laughs> to um, a kid that was coming over from the KBO, Ryu. Ooh, okay. Yeah, he was, he, I guess he still is a lot of fun to watch. Um, so Ryu's, you know, I don't, I don't know much about his KBO career, but I know he did win that 2008 gold medal game in the Olympics with South Korea over Cuba. Uh, that was a big moment. Uh, but then he, coming to the Major League Baseball, he was kind of concerned. You know, he didn't speak the language at the time. Um, obviously, it's just tough to make that transition in general. Uh, so on this first day, he sat down alone by himself on the bench, and then Wani Ribe sees him walks up to him and just punches him right in the arm and like what <laughs> happened and then ryu wraps his arms or sorry uribe wraps his arms around ryu and they start kind of just wrestling and having a good time <laughs> and at that point you know not speaking the language and uribe not you know being able to communicate either they just become inseparable throughout the season so that's just a great welcome from the team and i miss them so much yeah. Like seriously, every time the yeah. camera panned to the dugout, they'd always be talking and laughing. Um, and like, I think it would have been a great support for Ryu, really. Like, you know, even though we can't quantify that, yeah. you know, just having someone there in the dugout, I think. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, That's, yeah. Has, has to be huge. Right. Now, I know, I know you talk a lot about Ryu, Justin. Is he your favorite player or is it someone else? Like, past each row, I mean. <laughs> Past each no, no, that's actually Corey Seager. He's my fave. Oh, yeah. Well, that's a great choice. <laughs> Dodger fans. I just, I just love how, how, and I just, I, I talk about, you know, I love Ryu for the same reason I love knuckleballers, and it's, I just love guys who can go against the grain and make people look foolish without throwing ninety nine miles an hour. You know, like, and his command is impeccable. And he's just so fun to watch. And of course, there's that that great gif from a couple of years ago that is just legendary of, at this point, where he you know he, he gets the surprising sign. It's you know I'm talking about a, a picture on a podcast. I don't know what I'm doing here. Um, <laughs> Ryu's great is is the the long story. <laughs> yeah, uh, he ended up I think finishing ninth in Rookie of the Year in 2013. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so a great year by him as well. I had just really good stories throughout the way too in that book. Um, then I, 2013 Dodgers, I think you have to talk about Yasiel Puig. 
You absolutely got to do it. No. Um, so you said you can't nod and kind of looks a little bit unsure of yourself though, Noah. So what, what's your thoughts on Yasiel Pri before we dive in on him? So I'm not going to get into the, you know, off the field stuff because that's, you know, not, it's bad. Right. Um, but as far as 2013 goes, his, you know, that, that first season, he was a monster. He, 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 he was really, really good. Um, but he was also very inconsistent uh, the following seasons. Um, so it was a bit of a mixed bag. Uh, I, yeah, but um, the, those first 100 games, you would be hard. He was getting comparisons to Mike Trout for a little yeah. while there, um, which is a testament to Mike Trout because everyone gets comparisons to Mike Trout when they come up and hit, start start hitting the cover <laughs> off the ball. But, but he, he was one of the hottest hitters around. Yeah, exactly. He's not Mike Trout, that's for sure. Um, yeah, so like... But man, Puig... Yeah, that first season. Um, so... That was when I first started watching the Dodgers in earnest. Um, and back then, I didn't know anything about sabermetrics. I didn't know about BABIP or like, you know, WRC plus. So I thought, like, this guy is a genius, you know, watching his first hundred <laughs> games. But and he didn't really turn out as I expected him to be. Like first in my head, that initial thought. But he still was a solid player for a lot of years, you know. Um, so yeah, he was. But also, like as Noah mentioned, the basically like the up and down throughout his career. They were, they were frustrating to watch sometimes, like especially his, his, um, his base running gaffes. Yeah. Yeah. Where he yeah tried so hard to stretch a single into a double and then he gets thrown out at second base. That happened. Yeah. He, he um, was very, very aggressive on the bases, mm-hmm. but the, the thing that, that really I think held him back is, you know, his, there were the stories of him ripping up, you know, defensive cards in the outfield, you know, stuff like that. I know he had that quote after he left the Dodgers and he's like, you know, I hadn't been trying my hardest or, you know, something along those lines. And it's like, dude, you're in the majors. I, you know, I don't really want to get too in, in, into it, but yeah, but he, that, that first season, he, <laughs> he was, he was as hot as the game. Absolutely. Um, he obviously rubbed a lot of people the wrong way, just playing baseball by his bat flips and, you know, the way he ran on the bases and was about himself, uh, which was fascinating to watch. It led to a number of, of you know, bench clearing incidents and not straight out fights. Um, I think the that that's a good point is that I think that Puig was really the first player that I remember that was really in, you know, he played with a lot of heart and a lot of emotion and, you know, he he was bat flipping. He was so exciting to watch. He and he got into oh, yeah. you know the beef with old man Madison Bumgarner, who hates fun. You know, and 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 he was really that 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 initial wave, I think, of the let the kids play, you know, era. Um, and he, you know, he was. I had never seen anyone play baseball like that before, and he was just every at bat was my eyes were glued to the screen because yeah. I knew he was going to do something really fun and really memorable, and that. That's what I remember about Puig from 2013 was whenever he was on the field, whenever you watched a game, he was going to do something memorable, something entertaining. Yeah. Um, I think there was he, – he caused one fight. I'm, I don't remember the specifics. Uh, but then um, I think he was bat-flipping a gloating, of course, against the Diamondbacks. And so one of our pitchers – our pitchers, one of the Diamondbacks pitchers uh, threw at him. Bench is clear. And if you remember at the time, there was um, – kind of this image, a small video 
of Mark McGuire getting into it with the Diamondbacks third baseman coach, uh, Matt Williams at the time. Uh, McGuire was a hitting coach for the Dodgers. Oh, yeah. And you can just see McGuire's veins popping out of his arms. And you can see the veins in Matt Williams' head going off. They were going at it uh, yeah. just for these you know unwritten rules of baseball that we – Love today. We have our weekly articles about who had the best, best bat flips in the league that week. <laughs> nice plug. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. There, there's a lot of reasons that, that there's there's quite a few reasons to criticize Yasiel Puig, but the way he plays the game, mm-hmm. at least, you know, from, you know, I'm not talking about running into, you know, outs, but like the, the amount of fun that he has playing the game is not one of them. No. Um, and, and the book, by the way, uh, it does go into the psyche of Puig, um, how he came to this country in the first place, which is an incredible story, uh, defecting from Yuba, Cuba, being held hostage by the smugglers, uh, basically being blackmailed, having his life threatened, having security guards around him, and really not at the time into being introduced to the league that way, didn't really speak great English either. So this is a whole new world for him. And so the book does a great job diving into that. Um, and then obviously there's so many other players to talk about. Adrian Gonzalez, for example, ah. um, he had a great story in there, uh, Matt Camp. And then Zach Greinke was on the team as well. This team was stacked. <laughs> oh yeah. Zach Greinke was a monster those years. Oh my goodness! Didn't he have the ERA of like one point one or something? One of those years, it was something silly. I remember when he and Kershaw were both battling for the same Cy Young award, wow. and it was one of the best pitching seasons I've ever seen. Um, and then, of course, you've got the great anecdote uh, between Granky and and uh, you know his teammates. I don't know if you want to share it, Brandon. Now, I, I do want to put some context. Uh, the Dodgers, after having not such a great season, they were rebounding, and all of a sudden, in the chase for, for you know the National League West, and the coach uh, Don Manningly tries to give a stirring speech. And this late in the season, Granky doesn't say anything typically, and then he gets up, and all the players look at him like, "Oh, Zach Granky is going to say something," because they know he's a cerebral guy. He's going to say something to you know rally the troops. <laughs> and after this great speech by Mattingly, he goes, um, some of you guys have been doing the number two and not washing your hands. It's not good. I know this happened earlier today. <sighs> we got to have a Granky episode because he's the most entertaining player in baseball. Mm-hmm. I, I love Zach Granky. And then after about 30 solid seconds, it turns out, they kind of all looked at each other and just started laughing and loosened them all up. <laughs> So, good, and he good probably wasn't joking either, right? No, 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 not at all. He's <laughs> <laughs> amazing how he rides a fine line rise. between, like, there's a fine line between being rude and also being honest, but then he somehow like finds that middle ground. Yeah, 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 and he's, I, I miss him so much. Yeah, because yeah. Diamondbacks, yeah. Yeah, I remember the day he was signed. <laughs> I think I think Granky is really just one of those players that you know because he he really did battle. You know, he had his struggles with anxiety um, very early in his career, and it was uncertain that he would actually return to baseball. But you know, in the years since, uh, he's really been one of those players that that just looks very comfortable in his own skin, um, and you know, just being himself, which I think is is really really great to see from him. And you know, it's helped him become you know a Hall of Fame pitcher, right? Um, you know, he's, he's just, even today, he, he can't break 90 miles an hour most days, but he's still, you know, he's yeah, still getting guys out with, with Ephus pitches to and watch stuff. Him pitch. Absolutely. Yeah, it's See, a treat. You, you have the old adage, you know, he's a, he's a pitcher, not a thrower or something like that. But that's exactly what Granky is. He's yeah. a pitcher and the yeah. hitter and the fielder. And 
I did want to touch on one player that I know we briefly touched on Adrian Gonzalez, who, who Vince Scully called the butter and eggs man for, for, you know, he had like a three, almost a three thirty average had a nine ninety six on base plus slugging uh, for his career with runners in scoring position. But they also had Hanley Ramirez, who I feel like people yeah. forget about. Hanley Ramirez was a Dodger for a very, very brief window, but was one of the best hitters in the league when he was on the team. Yeah, it's like he flipped the switch when it came to the Dodgers um, after leaving the Marlins. Yeah, I mean, and that's yeah. that's really when he he really started becoming that 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 really power heavy, you know, uh, hitter, you know, because when he was with the Marlins, he was still a, a fairly quick, you know, he was playing shortstop, he was stealing some bases, but when he came to the Dodgers. Um, God, when he came to the Dodgers, he, you know, he started hit, you know, hitting bombs and that ended up being, you know, kind of the trajectory that we ended up seeing with him, you know, when he ended up going to, I think he went to the Red Sox a little later, um, you know, stuff like that. So, so really a lot of really cool, uh, really, it was a really eclectic mix of, of characters, um, with it, you know, in that group, but it all came together for one of the most entertaining seasons of baseball that I've ever seen. Um, and I, I still maintain that they, they had, they might've had words. I still maintain that they, they probably would have had a great shot at the world series if Hanley Ramirez didn't yeah. get his ribs broken by Joe Kelly, uh, in, in the playoffs. Um, but he was a fragile guy to be fair. Yeah. Well, <laughs> <laughs> who knew, who knew all these years later that Joe Kelly would redeem himself in the eyes of, of the, of Los <laughs> Angeles the baseball world. Yeah. That too. Um, so we, we are running up on our time here, so I don't think we're going to get to our best baseball play round table. Uh, but this was a whole lot of fun. I mean, I always have fun when I get to talk about the Dodgers. So <laughs> Brandon, thank you for that. For those of you that are listening and rolling your eyes, I apologize. Um, but now, I can- now, really quick, I want to point out we had basically entire episode talking about the Dodgers and you did not once mention him. <sighs> Do you want me to break it right now? <laughs> Mookie no, bets. Mookie bets. Mookie bets. Okay. Um, so that that will wrap it up. Um, so Justin, thank you again so much for for coming on the show. It was great to to you know actually get a chance to talk with you a little bit and just talk about all sorts of baseball. Um, so for those of you at home, please 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 follow Justin on Twitter at Justin Ochoy uh, and check out his really fantastic work at Fangraphs. I know he's talked a little bit about uh, you know he's got a Freddie Freeman piece coming out soon. Um, so keep your eyes open for that. Um, if it's not out by the time this <laughs> podcast drops, um, I, it'll be great. You'll learn a lot. So Justin, thanks for, thanks for joining us tonight. Yeah, it was fun. Um, really chill. And I enjoyed all the Dodgers talk, which I don't get to do very often because people are like, <laughs> stop, like, you know, like Dodgers, is, Dodgers, like yeah, they get enough right. spotlight. So, you know, but it was fun. Yeah. 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 It's it's always a nice break, I think, when, you know, you can come and just talk about, like, the fan aspect of things rather than, you know, mm-hmm. analysis and having to, you know, at least, you know, be n- impartial to a degree. Um, so thanks for thanks for joining us. Now, if you want more Short Hops and Tall Tales, you can follow us on uh, on Twitter at Short Hops PL. Uh, follow Brandon at BD Riddle and myself at Noah A. Scott 6. Uh, also, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. Leave a review if you're feeling it. Um, and then next week, I, we're going to tease. If this wasn't enough Dodger content for you this week, next week we have an incredibly special guest. Ooh. His one World Series. 
it's going to be amazing. I am so, so excited. Um, yeah. So, so whether or not you hate the Dodgers, you're going to enjoy this. Join that's, a, that's it's a guarantee. Be a great time. It's going to be, be a really cool time. Lots of good stories. So, for Brandon Riddle, I'm Noah Scott, and this has been the Short Hops and Tall Tales podcast. See you next time. Mm-hmm.